Good afternoon, everyone. In the Scriptures, we're told that Christ dwells in His church. That is, in the members of the church, individually, and also, since He dwells in the members individually, Christ also dwells in the church as a whole collectively. Have you ever stopped to think about exactly what that means? Christ dwelling in the church. Christ dwelling in you, perhaps, if you are a member of His church. I want to discuss this subject today for the sermon of Christ dwelling in you and explore some questions relating to the subject. First of all, how does Christ dwell in you? And under what conditions? Will Christ dwell in you? And what happens when those conditions are no longer met, if such is the case? And also, how does Christ dwelling in you affect you now, in this lifetime? And how will it affect you in the future? So first let's discuss how is it that Christ dwells in you? How does that work? What results in Christ dwelling in you? We need to understand from the standpoint of Scripture a principle, and that is that if Jesus Christ is in us, we also are dwelling in Him or abiding in Him. Look at John chapter 14 and verse 20. John 14 and verse 20. Jesus said, At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You in me, and I in you. So, if Jesus is dwelling in us, then we also are, so to speak, dwelling in Christ. John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus said, Abide in me, abide in me, or dwell in me, live in me, and I in you. Abide in me, and I in you. So again we see that here, if we are abiding in Christ, that He will abide in us. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. So if we are to have Jesus Christ dwelling in us, living in us, then we must be living in Christ, abiding in Christ. In verse 5 he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now think of a vine as a living plant. A vine as a living plant has... A, you might say a trunk or a main vine, and then it's got smaller vines branching out from the main vine. Well, in this analogy, Jesus Christ tells us that He is the main vine, and then we are the branches. And it says, He who abides in me, in other words, if we remain connected to the main vine, And I in him, 
again we see that if we are abiding in Christ, then He will be abiding in us. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Now, again, looking at the analogy of a vine, if the branches of the vine are not attached to the main vine, what can they do? What fruit can they bear? Well, if you know anything about vines, you'll know that a vine separated from the main main vine or branch separated from the main vine will soon wither and die. It can produce nothing when it is cut off from the vine. And so, Jesus said, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and I and my words abide in you. Now notice that here Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, as we will see, Christ, in order for Christ to dwell in us, His words must abide in us. His words must abide in us. And one is tantamount to the other. As we will see in John 14, verse 15. John 14, verse 15. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And, of course, the commandments are a part of the Word of God. And he went on to say, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Now notice the condition on which this helper is to be given, and that is keeping the commandments and loving God. Loving God means keeping His commandments. The Spirit of Truth. Notice that this helper is the Spirit. And it's not just any Spirit, it's the Spirit of Truth. Again, we see how God's Word is connected with our relationship with God and is integral to that relationship. The Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Now, in this chapter, Jesus is discussing with His disciples at the time the fact that He was about to depart from them. Now, He had been with them physically, bodily, during His ministry especially, although in all likelihood He knew at least some of them probably even before He began His public ministry. But He had been with them for three and a half years and he was about to depart. 
and return bodily to the Father. But he was telling them that he would not leave them orphans or he would not leave them alone, just coping of and by themselves without any help. But he said he would pro he he would send them another helper, the word helper, as it's translated in the New King James Version here, is from the Greek parakletos, and that parakletos, as it tells us, would be the spirit of truth. And the work that this spirit was to perform would be the work of guiding of comforting, of teaching, of strengthening his disciples, the work that he had been performing in his bodily presence with the disciples. That's what he had been doing, guiding them, teaching them, strengthening their faith and comforting them, even correcting them when necessary. And he had been with them all of that time. So, in that sense, God's Spirit had been with them in the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus said the Spirit that he would send would not only be with them, but in them. And the Greek word parakletos is somewhat difficult to translate into English because it actually implies a number of roles. It literally means called to one side. Para meaning alongside and kletos called. Called to one side and by extension called to one's presence or a place of residence. And especially means in the way that it was often used in the Greek language called to one's aid to be a helper, an aid, also an advocate, a legal counsel. This term was used of a legal counsel, uh, of an intercessor, a defender, a teacher, an advisor. So these are roles. All of these things are actually roles filled by the Holy Spirit. There are roles that Jesus Christ himself and God fills in the scriptures. And so, when Christ said he was sending the Holy Spirit, he was telling them that he would be there doing these things. He, as God, as well as the Father, would be with them and in them. And they would be accomplishing these tasks through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is nothing more or nothing less than God himself working in us or working in some other context but in terms of Christ dwelling in us when the Holy Spirit is in us then Christ is in us and it is Christ working in us through the Holy Spirit as he said I will come to you. He will come to, to us or to, to them and to us if we are his disciples through the 
Spirit of God. So, the giving of the Holy Spirit to us has to do with Christ dwelling in us. If the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, then Christ is dwelling in us. In John 15 and verse 26, John 15 and verse 26, Jesus said, when the Helper comes, and by the way, the word parakletos is masculine in the Greek. In the Greek language, every noun is assigned a gender. And the gender is either masculine, feminine, or neuter. And any pronouns used to refer to the that particular noun in the Greek will have the same gender, either masculine, feminine, or neuter, whichever is appropriate. So, since the word parakletos is masculine, in the Greek, any pronouns referring to that word are going to be masculine. Now, having assigned a gender to a particular word does not have any necessarily implication as regard to personhood. And there are many words in the Greek that are objects that are assigned either a feminine or a masculine gender. For example, the word... uh, Amartya, which means sin, is a feminine noun. Even though sin is not a person, and it's not a female, it's not a woman or a girl, but nevertheless, it has the feminine gender assigned to it, and so any pronouns in the Greek referring to sin the word sin, would be feminine. And so any any pronouns referring to parakletos will be masculine. Now on the other hand, the word for spirit in the Greek is pneuma, and it it is a neuter noun. And so any pronouns referring to spirit in the Greek are will be a, a neuter pronoun. Now, we understand through the careful examination of the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit is not a separate person from God. It is not a third person of a trinity. The Holy Spirit is a part of what God is. It is a part of His nature. And so... Sometimes people get confused about the pronouns used in English translations. And in the King James Bible, at least, the pronouns are usually translated faithfully to the Greek. In other words, if there's a pronoun that is referring to spirit, it will be a neuter pronoun which or that, for example, in English, 
But that's not the case in the New King James where often pronouns referring to spirit are translated as he or him. Anyway, I wanted to to make that clear that the fact that you read he or him in relation to the spirit of God here in the New King James Bible and certain other translations does not in any way validate the idea that the Holy Spirit is a person separate from God. Anyway, Jesus went on to say in verse 26 here, John 15, when the Helper comes, whom, and again this is not necessarily an indication that the Helper is a person separate from Christ, be better translated actually which in the English given the proper understanding of what the Holy Spirit is I shall send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who or which would be more accurate translation the Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father notice the Holy Spirit is a an essence, you might say, that proceeds from the Father. And it says, He will testify of me. The Holy Spirit will testify of me. Now when you testify, that means usually you're speaking. You're communicating information and revealing knowledge at least hopefully it's knowledge. Sometimes testimonies may not necessarily be true, so it may not be really knowledge. It may be false information. But in the case of this spirit, it is the spirit of truth. And one of the functions of the spirit that Christ would send was would, would, would be that it would testify or communicate information concerning Christ. And notice that the Spirit proceeds from the Father through Christ. In John 14, verse 26, John 14, verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice the The Spirit of God is sent in the name of Christ and through Christ. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit who was going to be sent was to help the disciples accurately remember the things that they'd been taught by Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus had been teaching them, but in order for them to pass that knowledge on to others, they had to recall it. And the Spirit would help them to recall accurately and correctly what they had been taught. The Spirit was involved was was critical to the work that was to be done by the apostles. 
in communicating an accurate message, the message that Christ wanted to be communicated to the world through them. Now Jesus Christ, even though the Spirit comes from the Father, Jesus Christ has a direct role in sending the Holy Spirit. Notice in Acts chapter 2 and verse 32, Acts 2 and verse 32, this was at the time that the Holy Spirit had been given to the church in a spectacular and special way on the day of Pentecost following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the way, this was not the first time that the Holy Spirit had been given. This was a special demonstration and pouring out of the Holy Spirit in in a unique way, but it was certainly not the first time the Holy Spirit had been given to a person. We read about the Holy Spirit many places in the Old Testament. So don't be confused by thinking that God's Spirit was never made available until this particular time. That's not true. But this was a special pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church as it was established under the New Covenant. And here in verse 32, or the verse 32, it says this Jesus God had raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. Notice that Jesus Christ was the one who poured out that Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Just as He had promised would occur. And they were empowered with the Holy Spirit in a way that that they had not been empowered previously, those particular individuals. They were empowered with the Holy Spirit and they were empowered because, among other things, God had a work for them to accomplish that would be done through the power of that Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we find that our bodies if we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that our bodies are, in a sense, a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Now, the the church collectively, and we, in a sense, individually, are a spiritual temple. We are each, you might say, miniature temples, and the church collectively is spiritually a temple for God. It is a place where God dwells. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, which is our body, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? And in the Old Testament, in the Levitical law, we read of a number of various types of rituals, washings, sacrifices, and so forth that were designed to purify 
those engaging in those rituals. And part of that was so that to, to remove defilement and to keep from defiling the temple. There were certain conditions under which one would was not allowed into the temple because of uncleanness of one sort or another. And so that those rituals provide lessons for us in spiritual purity. And we're not to defile the temple of God. We're not to defile our bodies with uncleanness. In chapter 6 and verse 19, chapter 6 and verse 19, the subject here directly is sexual immorality, which is what Paul is addressing, but it could include other types of defilement, in the principle could at least. In verse 19 of chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you or which is in you would be more accurate and, and a more proper translation. Whom or which you have from God and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. So if we have received the Holy Spirit through repentance and belief in the gospel and, and being yielding to God, being baptized, then that Spirit dwells in us and our bodies have become temples of the Holy Spirit. We read earlier that John 15 verse 26 that the Spirit of God testifies of Christ. It transmits to our minds the revelation of Christ. It gives us, it, it uh, empowers us to understand more deeply than we could otherwise to understand the Word of God. Notice in John 6 and verse 56, John 6 and verse 56, Jesus said in this verse, John 6 and verse 56, My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, this is a rather enigmatic statement here by Jesus. It's safe to say almost no one who heard this statement at that particular time understood what he was talking about. His, even his disciples did not understand what he was talking about. What do you What do you mean? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And no doubt, some thought he was talking about cannibalism, but that's not what he was talking about. What he was talking about was that his words must abide in us; that we must partake of his words. And that if we do that, then He will dwell in us as though we were, in a sense, eating of His flesh and, and drinking of His blood. In 
verse 63. Notice what Jesus said as a way of explanation. He said, It is the Spirit which gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Notice how the Spirit here of God is connected with the words of God. The words, it says, are spirit. You ever think of God's Word itself as spirit? The Word of God is actually spirit. And you, you, might, you might compare the Bible to, to a storage battery. In a battery, what you have is electricity. You've got a box full of electricity stored in that box. When you make the right connections, electricity, power, will flow out of that box to do work. The Word of God is consists of words which were inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're told that, that the Word of God was given to us through men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak or to write what they spoke or wrote. And those words have been recorded for us. So they are the Spirit of God, you might say, on paper. And God's Word works in concert with His Spirit to reveal to us essential information. Information that is essential to our salvation, to our understanding of the things of God. John 16, verse 13. John 16, verse 13. Jesus said, When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. Notice again, we see the connection between truth and truth is communicated to us through words. He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will tell you things to come. In other words, this Spirit would be communicating information that God wants to be communicated. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Declare it or reveal it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So the, the Spirit of God declares to us that which is of Christ and the Father, or reveals it to us. Now, how does it do that? Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 11, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, it says, What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. See, the spirit of God is a part of what God is, and it communicates the mind of God. We as human beings know what it's like to be a human being because we have the human spirit. 
And no creature who does not have the human spirit can know what we know as human beings, can experience what it means to be a human being. And other physical creatures have brains, and you might say minds in a sense, they have various degrees and levels of intellectual ability, depending on the animal, but none of them have the brain power of a human being. None of them have that capacity, that capability to think as human beings think. Now, they may have limited powers to think in certain ways, but not the kind of uh, ability that a human being has. And we, as human beings, do not have the capacity to think like God as mere human beings, as mere physical creatures. The only way we can have that capacity to think like God is if God gives us that capacity through His Spirit, putting His Spirit in us. And so Paul goes on to write in verse 13, in verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world. Now there, God's Spirit is not the only Spirit that we can receive. There is also the Spirit of the world. And you might say in some ways many spirits that are worldly. But we have not received the spirit of the world. But the spirit who is from God or which is from God, as it should be, that we might know the, the things that have been freely given to us by God. Notice that having received that spirit from God opens up our ability to know things that we could not know otherwise. To be able to think like God, to be able to see things as God sees them. To understand spiritual things that we cannot come to understand without the power of that Spirit working in us. In verse 13, it says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And in verse 16, Who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so we can we can come to understand the mind of God as that Spirit works in us. Now that revelation does not come all at once. In fact, it is cumulative. It is something that builds up gradually. As we study God's Word, the Spirit of God works in concert with God's Word. And we come to understand, I don't know if I read John 
16, verse 13 or not, attended to, but yeah, I guess I did. God's Spirit gives us the ability to understand God's Word more and more deeply as we study it and grow in spiritual knowledge and understanding. Now, we have to put forth effort to do that. We have to open our Bibles. We have to study. We have to consider. We have to think. We have to compare spiritual with spiritual, as Paul said. We have to compare the Scriptures and come to understand how to rightly divide the Scriptures, as it were, or correctly understand the Scriptures, because Scripture is written in such a way that it can be misunderstood, and in fact often is misunderstood. But with the help of God's Spirit and diligent effort, we can come to a more and more complete understanding of God's Word. Now we do have to be honest with God's Word. We have to be open to being corrected as we study and read God's Word and and not resist the truth because God's Word and the Holy Spirit can be resisted and those who who are unwilling to yield to God's Word, who resist God's Word, are in fact resisting the Holy Spirit. They're resisting God. They're resisting Christ. And this is actually something that is done quite commonly. But if we approach God's Word humbly and meekly, willing to be corrected, seeking understanding, praying for it, asking God to give us spiritual wisdom and understanding, then that will come as we apply ourselves and put forth effort. God will open up that understanding to us. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see that the Holy Spirit is something that binds us together as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. The body is one and has many members. Speaking of the body of Christ, or, well, our bodies, uh, by analogy, like the body of Christ. And as was mentioned in the sermonette, by the way, in verse 11, it says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills, as God wills. We don't all have the same gifts and abilities and talents, but we do share the same Spirit if we have God's Spirit. And that Spirit may work in us as individuals to accomplish different tasks depending on what God wants to do with us as individuals as was alluded to in the sermonette. Whereas the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body being many are one, so also is Christ. Because it is the body of Christ that is made one body through the indwelling of that Spirit. As it says in verse 13, For by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. In verse 27, it says, 
Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. We retain our individual identities, but nevertheless, we also are part of something bigger, a collective body, the body of Christ. We are still individual disciples of Christ. We're individually accountable directly to Jesus Christ for our conduct and behavior, but also we share the same spirit with others who have that spirit. And so that spirit unites us as the collective body of Christ. And the true body of Christ is not hundreds of competing sects and denominations teaching wildly divergent doctrines and following different practices. Now there are churches who use Christ's name, who claim to be Christ's church, that support and promote abortion, for example. There are other churches who claim to be Christian churches that oppose abortion. There are churches that support things like the ordaining of of homosexuals into the ministry. And there are other churches that oppose that, all claiming to be Christian churches. Those are just a couple of examples of churches that claim to be Christian churches that teach diametrically opposite doctrines in some rather important matters of spirituality and morality, not to mention many other aspects of Christian faith. That is not how the body of Christ is made up. The body of Christ is a body of believers unified in spirit. But even so, that union is not perfect. Even within the body of Christ, there exists division. There always has been division within the body of Christ. Even though the Spirit of God unifies the body to a degree there nevertheless exists division. And the division exists not because of God's Spirit, but because of carnality. Because within the body of Christ exists not only God's Spirit, but also fleshly minds and fleshly conduct, fleshly behavior and fleshly thinking. Notice what Paul wrote over here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3. He was writing to a church, the church in Corinth, and he said to this group of Christians, he said, you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? When we are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, that doesn't remove our carnal nature. That carnal nature is still there. And and then we, we have going on within us, within our own minds, a spiritual war, so to speak. A war between our carnal nature and the Spirit of God. And sometimes one prevails and sometimes the other does. It is up to us to strive 
to see that we suppress that carnal nature and overcome it with the help of God's Spirit. But nevertheless, there is carnality in the church. And that carnality produces division in the church. Despite the fact that God's Spirit is present. Notice in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, Ephesians 4 and verse 3, it says that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. And to the extent that we are responding to God's Spirit, that unifies us. And we are to strive to be at peace with one another in that unity of the Spirit. And he goes on to say, there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. He goes on to say in verse 11, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So here are various levels of responsibility in the ministry is what it's talking about here. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Notice this is the ministry that has been established in the church and it is for the benefit of the saints. It is for the benefit, it is for the purpose of equipping the saints and as he goes on to say for the edifying of the body of Christ. To edify means to build up. And So, that's why the ministry exists. For the purpose of helping the saints to develop spiritually and to be edified. So that the body of Christ itself can be edified. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Notice, it says, this work is to be done toward the goal of coming to the unity of the faith. And you cannot separate God's Spirit from the faith. The faith, the word faith, in the Greek, pistis, could also be translated belief, because faith is belief. And you can't separate the Spirit of God from the beliefs of the true faith or the word of God which are the same thing and so the spirit of God again works in harmony with God's word to produce unity in the body of Christ to come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to a perfect man to the stature, to measure the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's what we should be aiming toward as individual Christians is to become more and more like Christ. And as we as individuals become more like Christ, then the church as a whole will more accurately reflect what Christ is like. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. 
Now what this tells us is that the ministry has a responsibility to speak the truth in love. Not lie, but to speak the truth. Remember that lying is something that is condemned of God. And in fact, one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not lie. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie. For a minister to lie is a very serious matter. For anyone to lie is a serious matter, but especially for a minister. And we, are, for our part, are not to behave as children and be tossed about with every wind of doctrine. In other words, we're not to be latching on to various doctrinal ideas that come along, as they do, which are unsound. And this is something that happens frequently in the world and in the church. People raise up ideas, doctrines, false teachings. The unfortunate thing is that often those appointed to positions in the ministry, rather than fulfilling their responsibility to speak the truth, are themselves a cause of deception, a source of deception, proving unfaithful to their responsibility to speak the truth and often have spoken lies. At the time of Jesus, for example, there were many scribes, as they're referred to in the scriptures, sometimes they're called lawyers as well. These were ordained ministers at that time. These were titles given to ordained ministers of the law. And as such, their responsibility was to speak the truth of God's word, to teach God's word to the people. Unfortunately, though, they were not carrying out that responsibility faithfully. Much of what they taught was false and mere human ideas, human tradition. And they, when Jesus came along and spoke the truth, that engendered a great deal of wrath and opposition. And the very ones that had been ordained and made responsible to be teaching people the truth where they were unwilling, they were hostile to the truth. They were hostile to God's word. And it was no different, it had been no different for most of the history of Israel. Israel was a nation which had been called by God out of slavery in Egypt, out of spiritual blindness and darkness and idolatry. They'd been, God had revealed his word to them. They were a people chosen of God for a particular job to do. And they were given God's instruction, the knowledge of his word, and told to keep it, to live by it, and to teach it to others. But they did not fulfill that responsibility. They did not respond in a positive way to the calling and the instruction that God had given them. And 
So God sent prophets who were speaking his words, who were faithful to God, faithful prophets. And what happened to those prophets? In most cases, they were ridiculed, they were scorned, they were often persecuted and sometimes killed. And who was it who was opposing them? Often it was the leaders, the appointed leaders in the nation of Israel, God's own nation that he'd called and chosen, and the leaders that God had placed in positions of responsibility opposed those who were proclaiming his word faithfully and often put the prophets to death. It's a minister's job to speak the truth, whatever the consequences, and even at the cost of rejection and isolation, at the cost of being being ridiculed and having your words ignored. This is actually how God's word is been treated by most people down through history. But nevertheless, that is the responsibility of the ministry to speak the truth. Now, as it mentioned here, we are to come to the unity of the faith. We are unified to the extent that we believe the truth. And to the extent that we are confused and believe something other than the truth, we will lack the, that, the kind of unity, not only with God, but with one another quite often, that we should have. The unity that God wants us to accomplish is not possible apart from the Holy Spirit, and it is not possible apart from the truth. The true faith and the Holy Spirit and the truth go together. Remember, it's the spirit of truth. And it is a spirit that imparts to us a knowledge of truth, an understanding of of truth. An artificial man-made forced unity is fraudulent and deceptive. We cannot force... we, We cannot attempt to force unity on the church by coercion and threats while we're speaking falsehoods and errors but that has been often done and it may work to a degree to unify people in a system of false beliefs but that is not the kind of unity that God wants in his church in John 17 verse 11 John 17 and verse 11, Jesus said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. That they may be one as we are. It was Jesus, it is Jesus' will for his people to be one, that, that is to be unified. But he said, to be one as 
he and the Father are one. And they're one because they abide in truth. The church is separated, it is sanctified from the world to God's holy purpose through the word of God, through the truth. That's what separates the church from everything else. Notice in verse 16 of this same chapter, verse 16, Jesus said of his disciples, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify means to separate. And in connection with how it's used in Scripture, it means usually to separate to a holy purpose. And so Jesus asked God to sanctify his disciples by the truth. And we are also sanctified by the Holy Spirit as well. But these two go hand in hand. Sanctify them by your truth. Which is the word of God. Verse 18 is, You have sent me into the world. I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Sanctified by the truth. So we need to make sure as Christ's disciples that our beliefs are true. That, that our faith is the true faith, not lies and deceptions. We need to be prepared to reject anything that is false and separate ourselves from that. And notice Jesus prayed that we would be one as the Father and Christ are one. And that tells us that Christ and the Father are individual personalities and beings unified by the Spirit of God and by the truth. Just as we are individuals who may be unified, made one, so to speak, by the truth, by a common faith, and the Spirit, a common spirit. In Ephesians 5, verse 23, Ephesians 5, verse 23, it says, The husband is head of the wife, is also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Christ is the head of the church, and he alone is the head of the church. The church there is no, there, there's no human being, no physical human being, flawed human being who is the head of Christ's church. The church has only one head, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. And in verse 30, it says, We are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. And the analogy here is that of a married couple. And in a sense, we are married to Christ 
not that we will get married to Christ, we're already married to Christ if we have been converted, baptized, come into the covenant relationship with Christ. We're already espoused to Christ or married to Christ. We don't have to to uh, wait to go up to heaven and to be literally married to Christ as some falsely imagine. That's a lie. We're already married to Christ. And we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice again, there's, there's an analogy between the marriage covenant relationship and that of us with God. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Our union with Christ, though, is a spiritual union. It's not a physical union. It's a spiritual union. And it is illustrated by the physical union between a husband and wife, but it is a spiritual union that we have with God and with Christ. And so we are one spirit with Christ and therefore individually members of His body. Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, and verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now notice that we have a choice here. There are two paths that we can walk. One is behaving according to the Spirit. And the other is walking according to the flesh. And this is a choice that we make every day with every decision that we make. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, we don't have to be subject to our flesh. We can overcome it with the help of God's Spirit. In verse 9, Paul goes on to say, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit which dwells in you. Through the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we have the hope of eternal life. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, Galatians 3 and verse 26, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither... Greek, nor Jew, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what your physical circumstances are, if you are baptized and have received the Holy Spirit, then you are a member of the body of Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are 
Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise through God's Spirit dwelling in us. In chapter 4 and verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So, God is our Father, of course, in the sense that He created all of us, but He is our Father in a spiritual sense with because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we become His children spiritually. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We become children of God and heirs of salvation and heirs of everything that God has to give to us as His sons, which is everything as we discussed in another sermon previously. Now, we may have already answered this question to some degree, but under what conditions does God's Spirit dwell in us? Notice in John 14, verse 21, John 14, verse 21, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And now notice that the condition here is keeping God's commandments. And in verse 23, Jesus went on to say, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love to Him, and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. In other words, God would come and dwell in that person through His Spirit. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you, the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So, if we want to have God's Spirit, then we must keep his words as we saw earlier the word the words of god are spirit and if we are not walking according to god, those words then we will not have fellowship with god in order for us to have fellowship spiritual fellowship with god we must be walking according to his word Notice in 1 John 1 verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Any real spiritual fellowship that we have with one another is predicated on our individual fellowship with the Father in Christ. If that is lacking, then the rest of it is just a farce and a fraud. It says, all these things are, we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie 
and do not practice the truth. So, we may think of ourselves as Christians. We may firmly believe that we have a relationship with God and with Christ and that we are indeed Christians. But according to the Bible, if we are walking in spiritual darkness, then we are lying. We're lying to ourselves. We're deceived. We're not practicing the truth. And we need to be careful that we have not deceived ourselves. Thinking that we are converted when, in fact, we're walking in darkness and falsehood and lies. 1 John 3 and verse 24. 1 John 3 and verse 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him. Notice here again, the condition is keeping God's word, his commandments, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. If we are keeping his commandments, then we can be sure that God is abiding in us. Now, are we doing that perfectly? Probably not. But we should be able to look at our lives and judge whether most of the time, you know, preferably all the time, but we, we, we may occasionally slip up. If we do that, we need to repent. But we should be able to tell whether we're actually obeying God's commandments if we're honest with, with ourselves. What, what are we allowing ourselves to indulge in that might not be keeping His commandments? Are we lying? Do we steal? Do we covet? Do we lust? Do we indulge in some form of compromise with idolatry? In chapter 4 and verse 12, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. So we must love one another as Christians and that means treat one another in accordance with God's commandments. Again, says what love is. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have none believed the love that God has for us, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Notice that we are to be in this world like Christ and we're to love as Christ loves. How, how, does, how do we love our neighbors? How do we love God? Verse 1 of chapter 5, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. Now belief here is not just an empty belief. It is a conviction which leads one to action. As he goes on to explain by this, we know that we love the children of God. How do you know that you love others? 
other children of God? It says, when we love God and keep His commandments. Now, if you're lying to people, if you're stealing from them, if you're committing adultery, if you're doing other things that are violating God's commandments, that's not love. So the test of whether you are abiding in Christ and He abiding in you again is keeping the commandments. For this is the love of God. Verse 3, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. By the way, you may think, why, is, why does He keep harping on the commandments? Well, I'm, it's my job to teach you God's Word. And the commandments are at the core of our relationship with God. That's why I harp on the commandments. In case you thought that, I don't know if anybody did. But, <laughs> but yes, I know I talk about the commandments a lot and I intend to keep on doing it because many people want to pretend, play games with God and somehow avoid the whole idea that being a Christian means being responsible to God and keeping His commandments. To confess that Jesus is the Son of God requires more than lip service. What God looks at are our deeds. And our faith is manifested by our deeds. As Jesus said in Mark 7 and verse 6, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Those who profess Christ but walk in their own traditions in opposition to God's Word are making a false confession. Notice how A.T. Robertson puts the idea in his commentary, word pictures in the New Testament, concerning confessing Christ, confessing that Christ is the Son of God. This confession of the deity of Jesus Christ implies surrender and obedience also, not mere lip service. And that is true. In 1 John 4 and verse 16, 1 John 4 and verse 16, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. The one in whom Christ dwells experiences on an ongoing basis the love of God. He believes in God, he loves God, he trusts God. And he realizes that God's love is expressed through His Word and through His commandments. It is not human love, it is divine love. It is love which originates with God and comes to us through God. As God empowers us to experience and express that love in how we live our lives. First John 3 and verse 6, John wrote, Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And 
the word sin in the Greek here is in the present tense. Now, in the present tense in Greek, the t the use of that tense usually implies present and continuing action. So, what what this has what this means is that one who knows God does not habitually practice sin, but he is striving to overcome sin, come out of living in sin. Now we may sin occasionally through the weakness of the flesh, but if we are truly in Christ and He in us, we're not going to be deliberately practicing sin as a way of life. We're going to be striving to come out of sin. We're going to be living lives of repentance and striving to obey God's Word. Now David was a man after God's own heart. And uh, he was held up as a model king later on after his life was over because of his devotion to God. But he did commit sins at times, which we read about, some of them. But if you note, in, in those instances where David's sins are recorded and there were some serious sins there, he finally came to himself and realized that he was sinning and he repented bitterly. And so, yes, we may sin occasionally, but we need to be examining ourselves and repenting on a daily basis and striving to put God's laws to, into effect in our lives if we want to have Christ abiding in us. Now, if we no longer are meeting the conditions for Christ to dwell in us, then we can become disqualified. We can be rejected. If we decide that we're no longer going to live according to God's Word, we're just going to go ahead and give in to the flesh and do what we want to do without regard to God's laws and commandments, then eventually the point will come where we will be rejected. As Christ said in John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes so that it may bear more fruit. So, if we want to remain in Christ, we must bear fruit. What that means is the fruit that we bear is the fruit of obedience to God's Word. Fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so forth. And avoiding falling into the trap of habitual sin. And if we do fall into that trap, repenting. There's more to this that we could go into that we don't have time for. But how does Christ dwelling in us affect us now? Well, Again, we're running out of time, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But suffice it to say that by Christ dwelling in you, you become a different person from what you were before or from what you would be otherwise. You live not just for yourself selfishly, but you live for God. And 
you are motivated by godly love as we read. You do good to others. You treat others with kindness and respect. You don't lie to people. You don't steal from them. You don't commit adultery with somebody else's mate. You don't indulge in idolatrous conduct. There are many ways in which it will affect your life now. You, you will be a person reflecting the nature of Christ. You will think the way Christ thinks. You will live the way Christ lives. And that's not the way most people are living today, by the way. What about the future? How does Christ dwelling in you affect your future? If you have dwelling in you the Spirit of Christ, then you have the gift of eternal life already in a limited sense. Notice in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1 and verse 13, it says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, it goes on to say, verse 14, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who, or which as it should be translated, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. In other words, you, you have a down payment on eternal life. You have the promise of eternal life. You no longer have the death penalty hanging over your head because you've, you've been forgiven of your sins. Your, the slate has been wiped clean. God doesn't see your sins any longer. And as long as you continue to strive to obey God, you can look forward to the resurrection. You have the hope of being glorified as Christ is glorified. Notice in Philippians 3, verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection." and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained, none of us have it made yet, or am already perfected, but I press on, and this is important. We can stumble, we can fall down, we need to get up, dust ourselves off, and press on. Never give up. Never give in to the flesh. That I may lay hold on that for which Christ Jesus 
has laid hold on, of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now notice that the resurrection means that we will share in the glory that belongs to Christ. We, we will be given bodies, glorified bodies, not fleshly, flesh and blood bodies, but glorified bodies like that of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. If Christ dwells in us, then we will walk the way he walked. And our minds will understand the truth. We will live by the truth. And we will be given the gift of eternal life.